Good morning, everybody. I uh, bring greetings from Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada from the coastland, and it's good to see you all here in the desert. Um, if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 6 through 11, but we'll focus in on verses 9 through 11. That will be our, our more text for this morning. So Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In his Orthodox Catechism, Hercules Collins asks this is question 22. He says, What are those things which are necessary for a Christian to believe? What are those things that are necessary for a Christian to believe? And here's his answer. All things which are promised us in the gospel. The sum of this is briefly comprised in the articles of the Catholic and undoubted faith of all true Christians, commonly called the Apostles' Creed. You've all heard of the Apostles' Creed. Well, what's one of those lines in the Apostles' Creed, necessary truth, that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven? This is necessary truth for Christians to believe. And so we're going to study the ascension this morning, Jesus going up into heaven. And we'll study our text, but we're also going to draw some implications of it to other doctrines and also some application for our own lives. So by way of introduction, I'm going to say three things that will kind of set the scene for us. The first of all is just the context of this passage and the context of the book of Acts as a whole. So the book of Acts was written by Luke. And it's really part two. There's part one is Luke's gospel, and Acts is part two. Uh, he wrote them to Theophilus. And although in our Bibles they're separate, uh, we have Luke and then John and then Acts, they really should be together. They're part one and part two. And there's an overlap between the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, and it's actually the ascension. In the end of Luke, we see the, uh, the narration of the ascension, and then in Acts, in the very beginning, we see the ascension reiterated, said, and there's actually more detail in the book of Acts. And so we need to remember why Luke wrote these two books. He wanted his readers to have certainty concerning the things that they were taught. This includes both what Jesus began to do, that's the gospel of Luke, and what he continued to do, that's the book of Acts. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope that as we study this, the ascension this morning, this will give you more certainty concerning the things that you believe. The second thing by way of introduction is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. This is where the ascension took place. We, we know this, if you look at verse 12, 
It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So the ascension took place on the Mount of Olives. Now, what is the Mount of Olives? Well, let me try to describe it for you, and this will help set the scene. So the Mount of Olives, it's called the Mount. It's not really a mountain. It's more of a hill. Um, when I was driving here on Highway 14, there's these rolling hills, right? And that's what it kind of would look like. The Mount of Olives was about two miles long. It's a ridge, and it was actually right across from Jerusalem. So there was this valley, the, the Kidron Brook, and then there was the Mount of Olives on one side, and then Jerusalem was on the other side. And when you were on the Mount of Olives, you could look over and you could see Jerusalem in all its majesty and glory. You could see the city. And so Jesus, during his ministry, would come to the Mount of Olives and different places on it, um, and he would teach his disciples here. In fact, one, some of the places where Jesus teaches about the destruction of Jerusalem, you, they would have been able to see it right across the valley. And so it kind of helps set the scene for some of these, these places and times when Jesus taught his disciples. It's also where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And so this was a special place. So now Jesus has been resurrected and they come back to a familiar place, the Mount of Olives, and he's here with his disciples, and he's teaching them. The third thing is, I'll call it the kingdom of Christ. Um, directly before Jesus ascends, the, there's this important dialogue. His disciples ask what is kind of a dumb question. They say, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is somewhat of a ridiculous question. Jesus had taught his disciples a lot about the kingdom of, of Christ. And what does it say that Jesus taught his disciples in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension? The kingdom of God. And now they're here asking, will you restore it to Israel? Will you go across the valley and set up your throne on David's throne in Jerusalem? And Jesus' response is gentle, but it's firm. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He basically says, you're asking the wrong question. He's not going to go over there and banish the Romans and set up his throne, an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. And I think it's important that we note the proximity of that dialogue and the ascension. The disciples say, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And I think that's somewhat of an answer to their question as well. And so, um, Jesus, um, he, he says that he's not going to go over there and set up the kingdom, an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, but he does say that he'll send his spirit to them. And this happens in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what does he say? He says that the, it will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And this is the Holy Spirit building the spiritual kingdom of Christ. And what it is, is it, it's, a, it's a fulfillment of the original um, command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth. And now we see the kingdom of Christ doing just that. And here we are, thousands of miles away in Lancaster, California, um, as a result of that. And so, those, that's the introduction. We'll move into our, our main points of our sermon. We have three main points and they're pairs, okay? So the first point is ascension and exaltation. Ascension and exaltation. So our text describes the ascension of Jesus. And I want to unpack this and just go over the details. 
Look at verse 9. It says that he was lifted up. So his body physically rose up into the air. It ascended. And if we read this and we just move on without any response, I think we've watched too many Marvel movies. (laughs) Normal people don't ascend into the air. This is a miracle. Jesus rose into the air. He was lifted up. This is a great miracle. Um, In other places in the New Testament, the ascension is described as Jesus departing or him being taken up. That's in 1 Timothy. In fact, the early church would call the ascension the taking up. So Jesus, is, he, he rises into the air. We also read that he was seen doing this. Look at verse 9. It says, as they were looking on. Luke adds this little phrase here. As they were looking on, they saw it happen. There were witnesses to this event. Jesus didn't ascend in some back alley in Jerusalem where no one saw him. He ascended on the Mount of Olives. There was a clear view. Uh, you could see for miles. And they saw him rise. As they were looking on, he was seen ascending. We also see where he ascended, the the terminus of his ascension. Where did he go? It says, into heaven. So let's unpack this. What does that mean? Some people take this to just be the sky. He went up into the sky. Some people take this to be space, as if Jesus went up to Jupiter or Saturn or something like that. What does it mean that Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, the church throughout the ages has believed rightly that this is the highest heaven is what it's called. It's the heaven above the heavens. Paul calls it the third heaven. Jesus did not ascend to the rings of Saturn and that's where he sits. He's not a glorified astronaut, as J.I. Packer says, but he ascended to the heaven above the heavens. And scripture will use the phrase the heavens as an analogy for the highest heaven. Um, he is, if you think about it, look up, if you look, you can't look, there's a ceiling here, but if you look up into the heavens or at, at, at night, you could probably see the stars pretty good here. You can't see them at all where I live. Um, too much light pollution. It looks like they go on and on and on forever, doesn't it? And it's a good analogy. We can't see the end of our universe. Even with the most powerful telescope, that NASA has, you cannot see the end of the universe. To us, it seems infinite, although it is finite. There is an end somewhere. And so it's a good analogy of the highest heaven, the heaven above the heavens. So listen to Zacharias Ursinus. He describes this highest heaven. He says, that immense, bright, clear, and glorious space, which is without and above this world and those visible heavens, in which God manifests himself immediately and gloriously. It's a good definition of heaven. But he quickly adds, God is not contained in that space, but that he especially manifests himself there. And so when we consider the ascension of our Lord Jesus, we see that he locally and visibly ascended into the highest heavens, the heaven above the heavens. And what did the angels tell the disciples? They say, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven. This is his whole person. Jesus was taken up into heaven. And I want to qualify something. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is omnipresent. When the God the Son incarnated, he did not lose part of his deity when he incarnated. 
Now, this is somewhat difficult to understand, but God the Son is omnipresent. He is in all places. At the same time, he's united to the human body and soul of Jesus Christ. So we can say this in a very precise language, that with respect to Christ's human nature, he ascended body and soul into heaven. If we look in our passage, we also see a mention of a cloud. What is that cloud doing there? It took Jesus out of their sight. They, could, they stopped seeing him. Now, all, many scholars think this is just a cloud. It's a, a vapory mist that took Jesus out of their sight. But I think those of us who know our Bibles, when we see that a cloud comes and it, it takes Jesus into heaven, I think we'll be reminded of something else in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, you can think of the glory cloud in the Old Testament that rested on the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Shekinah glory of God. But also in the transfiguration, remember when Jesus and his, three of his disciples go up onto this mountain and uh, they see a Moses and Elijah with Jesus and Peter's like, let's make tents or tabernacles for all three of them. And then we see that a cloud comes and covers them and a voice comes from the cloud and it says, this is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And here at the ascension, Jesus, on another mountain, is covered by a cloud and goes up into heaven. And I think this is a sign of the Godhead. This is a sign of the glory of the ascending Christ. And I think this is a sign of his divinity. If you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, I want to read two verses. I think there's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7 here. So Daniel chapter 7, it's in the middle of your Old Testaments. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So listen as I read. Daniel, under the inspiration of God, writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, a son of Adam. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is the one that's like a son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days and is given a kingdom that's unbeatable? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the ascension, we see this fulfilled. We see the son of man, truly man, truly God, going up into heaven with the clouds of heaven. It's a beautiful prophecy. And we also see in the ascension something of the covenant of redemption. That's that covenant between God the Father and God the Son, where if the Son fulfills his part of that covenant or that commitment, then the Father would resurrect and exalt him. Because God the Son took on flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, as we read to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Father has exalted him. What's part of that exaltation but the ascension into heaven? Uh, I think that's, that's beautiful. You see, as Paul writes, he has given Jesus the name that is above every name. And I think this shows that he, our ascended Lord, who sits in heaven right now, is truly exalted. And this leads us to consider something else as well. When we say that Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, ascended locally and physically into heaven, that's the first time 
that the human nature of the Son goes into heaven. Something to consider. And this is, this is beautiful. Um, the early church father, Cyprian, wrote this. The Lord ascended into heaven, not where the word of God had not been before, because he was always in heaven and remained in the Father, but where the word made flesh did not sit before. These are profound thoughts. And I, I can't speak of this joyful entry of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into heaven. This gives me a deep thrill. It's, this excites me. Uh, this is good stuff. John Flavel tries to describe, he's a Puritan, tries to describe what it must have been like, the welcoming home of the Word made flesh. He writes, Oh, what jubilations of the blessed angels were heard in heaven. How the whole city of God moved at his coming. The very heavens echoed and resounded on that account. Yea, the triumph is not ended at this day, nor ever shall. And so we see that Jesus Christ in the flesh ascended into the glories of heaven. And if we keep reading our Bibles in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. And what does he see? He says that he looks full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus there standing at the right hand of God. And so let's apply this, the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. First of all, brothers and sisters, this should lead us to praise. This should lead us to praise our exalted, our ascended Lord. Um, he was taken up into glory. In Luke 24, uh, this is the other account of the of ascension, the disciples see him ascending into heaven, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and what does it say? They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. <laughs> and that should be our response too. Let us rejoice in our ascended Lord. And secondly, another application is that consider your union with the ascended Lord. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. Therefore, a human being, already glorified because he had been resurrected, sits on the throne of glory. Hear that again. A human being sits in heaven right now as we speak. And so if you are united with Jesus Christ, what does this mean? Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If the ascended Lord is in heaven, he has gone before you. And as he is, so will you be. And so when we consider our union with the ascended Christ, this is something that's in the future for us, but it also is a present reality. What does Paul write in Ephesians 2, 6? He says, and raised us, past tense, up with him, and seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is something that we taste of even now, and it is also a future hope. And so what's our response? Paul says in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so the ascension and the resurrection, together part of the exaltation of Jesus, these things are comforting to us. Are you struggling with the disease or chronic weakness, or sickness, or cancer, or mental illness, will have courage. For your Lord has ascended as a human into heaven, and as he is, so will you be. And think about it. This is not something that's just in our imagination, but we sit here right now. Our Lord sits in heaven at this very moment, right now. 
And I think that this should give us hope. I'll finish this point by reading Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All right, let's move on to the second point, session and intercession. Session and intercession. I'll talk about session first, and then I'll talk about intercession. If you haven't heard that word session before, it just means sitting down, okay? And so when we talk about the session of Jesus Christ, we're asking, what did he do when he went to heaven? Well, the Bible teaches that he sat down. He, it's called his session at the right hand of God in heaven. And... Um, This is not directly found in our text, but it is an implication of it. If he ascended to heaven, then what did he do? We know from the rest of Scripture that he sat down. Um, One place where this is very, very clear is Psalm 110. This is one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. Um, This is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is David speaking. So David's son, and yet David's Lord, he sits down at the right hand of Jehovah in heaven. And when we continue reading in Psalm 110, we see that this session includes power over everything, including the enemies of God. And so if we go back again to Daniel 7 as well, we saw that he's the one who comes with the clouds of heaven and that he is presented before the Ancient of Days. Well, And then the very next verse we read, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting one. So Jesus Christ is exalted. He goes up into heaven physically and locally. He sits down and he's given power over all things. And so this is his session. Now, just because he's pictured as sitting doesn't mean he's disinterested. It doesn't, that's not a sign of his basically his checking out. That it's, a, it's a sign of his power. It's a sign of his dominion. He will put all enemies under his feet. So, implications of this. If Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, then he is God. The one who sits on the throne of God is God. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father. He was taken up into glory and he was given all power and glory and honor over all creation. Could a mere man be exalted in such a manner? No, only one that was truly man and truly God. And so the session, the ascension and session of our Lord is evidence of our Lord's deity. He is God. And we see this powerfully in Revelation 5, when every creature in all the universe says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Another implication of his session is that he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. His reign will never end. He is all-powerful. He has no rival. No one can supplant our king who sits on the throne in heaven. Our confession talks about this, about how Jesus is the head of the church. And the ascension and the session of Christ is is a powerful way to say this. 
The confession says the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. There is no other king over God's church. There is no other head over Christ's church. And those who supplant the authority of the ascended and seated Lord are truly antichrist. They work against him. They work against the reign and the rule of the seated king in heaven. And also, if Jesus Christ is seated in heaven, then this is very comforting to our souls. Believer, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here, no matter the darkest road that you may travel or the deepest affliction that you may bear, remember your king is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And remember Jesus' session. When you are persecuted or you despair, you go through waves of depression, remember that he has all the power and all the dominion. And remember, friend, when you go to die, that your Lord is seated at the right hand of the Father. Remember Stephen was given a vision of Jesus there in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And as you draw your last breath before you die, and this earth fades from view, what do you think you'll see? You'll see in clearer and clearer sight himself seated there in glory and triumph. All right, so that's his session. Let's talk about his intercession. So if Jesus Christ did not ascend, then he cannot intercede for you. You could say it like this, no ascension, no intercession. This is a really important doctrine, but it, 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 it goes from, it is entailed from the ascension of Jesus Christ. Consider the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. Remember the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would offer a sacrifice for the sake of all Israel. Now, we have to remember in our heads the architecture of the temple. Remember how there's three sections? There's the outer courtyard, and then you go into the holy place, and then you go past the veil, and then there's the holy of holies, right? And as you go furthermore into the, inside the temple, you get holier and holier because that's where the presence of God is. And the priest would symbolically ascend by going into the temple. You could kind of think about this. He's in the courtyard. He's walking past the, the big basin of water and has the cattle underneath it, facing north, south, east, and west. This is like the land and the sea. And then he goes into the holy place. And what's covering the veil? Well, pictures of the cherim, but cherubim, but also the stars of heaven, right? And so as he goes from the courtyard into the most holiest place in the temple, he, in a, in a symbolic way, ascends into the very presence of God. And we see this in different places in the Old Testament, but that's really the most powerful picture of it. And so when Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, keep that symbolism of the priest going into the temple in mind. The, the book of Hebrews beautifully captures this. When it, when it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The ascension of Jesus Christ is part of his priestly work. The, whole, the high priest in the Old Testament would also make a sacrifice before he ascended into the presence of God. 
Well, Jesus Christ, he didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. That's why he's a better high priest. But he did make a sacrifice, did he not? He made a sacrifice for his people. And then he ascends into heaven and he says, look at what I have done. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look at what I have paid for for my people. Look how I have ransomed them. And this is the intercession of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus goes up into heaven and he goes before the Father, he presents himself and his work, which he had finished on the cross, and the Father accepted his work. And this is the whole foundation for our salvation. And as he is seated there in heaven, the scripture says that he continually intercedes for us. Have you ever considered that? What does that mean, that Jesus Christ intercedes for it? Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for them. And so we could say that Christ's intercession is the continual application of his perfect sacrifice. I want to make something very clear. When I say that Jesus presents his work to the Father, he is not sacrificed over and over again. That is not what, what the intercession of Christ is. Hebrews says very clearly that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Instead, our ascended Lord pleads our cause, not by suffering again and again, but saying, I bled and died for that one. And that is the application of his sacrificial work for his people. Now, we have argued that Jesus, in his human nature, ascended into heaven. That's important. For God the Son incarnate, a human being, stands before the throne interceding on our behalf. You see, we were represented by Adam, and he, fe he failed, he fell. But now we are represented by a true human being who is in heaven, and he pleads on our behalf before the Father. It's beautiful pictures of the gospel here. John of Damascus wrote, through him, human nature rose from the lowest depths of earth, higher than the skies, and in his person sat down at the throne. This is our ascended high priest. And so, what's the application of the intercession of Jesus? Well, brothers and sisters, have confidence in your ascended priest. Hebrews 10 says this better than I ever could. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's beautiful, isn't it? But sometimes don't we forget that? We forget these realities. But that doesn't change the fact that they are true. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.1, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We can sometimes slip and fall into thinking that maybe we're not good enough to be forgiven. That maybe we need to go back and do good works to be accepted by God. And you know what that does? It depresses us. Because if you really look at our works, they are filthy rags. They cannot be accepted before God. We need to remember 
that our great high priest intercedes for us, and this is grounded on what he did at Calvary. And so, brother or sister, is your conscience afflicted? Are you weighed down with guilt? Remember, as Paul says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so remember, no ascension, no intercession. It is precisely because our Lord has ascended into heaven and has sat down at the right hand of God that he can intercede for us. What does Charles Wesley write in his hymn? Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Let's move on to our final point, which is return and remember. Return and remember. Let's talk about the return part, and then we'll talk about the remember to close. The angels speak of the Lord's return. Look at verse 11 in your text. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, Jesus was locally and visibly taken up into heaven and he will return from heaven in the same manner. He will return locally and visibly. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. He will descend. He has ascended, but he will descend again. He will return. And notice the effect of this on the apostles. They see the Lord Jesus ascend, and they have the promise that he will return. This gives you a great understanding into the motivation for the apostles' teaching, their piety, and their own works of love. Paul, in his writings, uh, he views Christians as those who have already begun to experience the power of the resurrected Lord. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase, the already, not yet? We have some of the blessings already. We have not experienced the resurrection of our bodies yet, have we? We we know that very clearly, some of us, and the joys of the new creation. But we have been spiritually resurrected. Because our Lord Jesus was resurrected, we will be too. And it's because our Lord has ascended into heaven and entered glory that we will be glorified as well. It's a guarantee of our glorification. This is our hope, the return of the king, and he will usher in his beautiful and perfect and consummated kingdom one day. Can't you wait? And so I ask you, brother or sister, are you ready for the return of the ascended Lord? Jesus told his disciples, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or as Paul says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Is the second coming of our Lord something that you fear? Is it something that you're afraid of, Christian? That should not be your response. What should our response be to the return of our ascended Lord? Well, let's listen to Hercules Collins again. He says, what comfort do you have by the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead? Answer, that in all my miseries and imperfections, I look with my head lifted up. For the very same one who before yielded himself to the judgment of God for me and took away all malediction from me 
will come as judge from heaven to throw all his and my enemies into everlasting pains. He will translate me with all his chosen to himself into celestial joys and everlasting glory. And so, dear brother and sister, in the light of the second coming of Christ, look with your heads lifted up. Jesus bore the judgment you deserved, and that same Jesus who ascended will descend again. He will come as judge from heaven, and he will defeat his and your enemies. And you will be translated into the state of glory. As John says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The last point here, the last um, part of our, our third point is remember. Remember, what do we do in the meantime? Because the Lord hasn't returned yet. We need to remember. And there's many aspects of, of how we can remember. And I want to talk about two, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So let me take what we've learned about the ascension and let me apply it to those two sacraments. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper first. If Jesus ascended locally and physically into heaven, then he is not physically on earth. The bread and wine that we take in communion is not the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus. They are symbols, and they cannot be turned into the physical body of Jesus. Remember, it's in heaven. And so they are bread and wine, and they remain bread and wine. So the doctrine of the ascension can guard us from many errors concerning the Lord's Supper. You can probably think of some in your own head. Another implication of the ascension, of, and we apply it to the Lord's Supper, is that because he ascended and because the promises he will descend again, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not merely something past tense. Now, it is a memorial. We look back to Calvary and his spilt blood and his broken body. It is a memorial. But also, it looks forward at the same time to the marriage supper of the Lamb when our Lord will dine with us at his table. What does Paul say? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we look back at what he has done and we look forward to what he will do. It is a past, a present, and a future reality. And so we're not looking back only to his cross, but we're also looking forward to his crown. Now, let me take the ascension and apply it to baptism. Well, in baptism... The symbolism is beautiful. I'll talk a little bit more about that in our second sermon this afternoon. But you go under the waters, and then you rise, you ascend out of the waters. And so the, the symbolism is that as you descend into the waters, you are buried with Christ in his death. And as you ascend from the waters, you are raised with him in his resurrection. And so after being raised from the dead, where did Jesus go? Well, he ascended into heaven. And remember, as he is, so shall we be. And so he is alive. He ascended in heaven at the right hand of the majesty and high. He's glorified. So here's what I'm saying. Being baptized is a symbol of new creation life in the Lord Jesus. It is the entrance into the new covenant. It symbolizes entrance into the new covenant. And so for those who have been baptized, for those who have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we can be guaranteed of our glorification one day as well. You could say it like this. You could be guaranteed of a resurrection body because the resurrected Lord has ascended into heaven. 
Um, the apostle writes in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So in conclusion, we studied the Lord's ascension into heaven. We saw that he visibly and locally ascended into the highest heaven and that he sat down in power and majesty at the right hand of God, that he continually intercedes for his elect, that he will return one day in the same manner in which he ascended, and that as we remember him in the Lord's Supper and as we see it symbolized in baptism, we can be guaranteed that one day we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for these beautiful truths recorded in your word. Thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. We thank you for his perfect work on the cross. We thank you that you raised him from the dead and that he sits even now in power and dominion. We thank you that none of his or our enemies can truly defeat us because our king sits in heaven. And Lord, I pray for any Christian here that they would be encouraged and inspired by these things. And I pray for those who do not know you who sit here, that they would view this ascended Lord and that they would see their own need, their own sin, and that they would look to the perfect blood and precious work of Jesus Christ and that they would see that they are great sinners but that you are a great savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.